Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. As I'm sure you notice in my introduction every week, I could say this is a New York City-based podcast. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my hometown. And I'll start with a story that took place this Christmas Eve that just passed. I was out and about running errands when I decided to uh, treat myself to a Christmas dinner and get some takeout at a local restaurant that I've been to dozens of times. Now, for clarification, thanks to the New York City vaccine mandate, I'm not allowed to enter and sit and eat in the establishment. But let me ex explain to you by my example of what is allowed in this completely insane anti-science time. So I walk in, no mask, because by the letter of the law, according to the New York City and uh, New York State mask mandate, you don't need to wear a mask to enter a place that has an existing vaccine mandate. So here I am walking in without a mask, as the law allows. And I walk up to the, um, I actually have to walk some distance to the back of the restaurant to place my order. So I tell them what I want, I pay, and they tell me it's going to be about 15 minutes. So I say to them, okay, I'm going to sit here and wait. So now I am in the place, unmasked and unvaccinated, sitting for at least 15 minutes. But somehow this makes sense. <clears throat> but it goes further than this. There were, it was in the mid-afternoon, so the place was virtually empty. There were two tables of guests. At the first table, it appeared to me to be um, an older couple taking out their son and his girlfriend for a Christmas dinner, um, a Latino family all around. So they were sitting there enjoying their meal. Um, like like it would be any time that just four people eating a meal. Then about four tables over was a couple, couple of white people, um, under thirty, maybe late twenties, and they're sitting across from each other looking at the menu. And while seated at seated at the table, they're wearing masks. Each of them is wearing a mask. Now bear in mind, in order to sit at that table, they had to show a vax card and a photo ID proving the Vax card was theirs. So they're sitting there with their masks on. So I'm just sitting down, my earphones in, listening to a podcast, waiting for my food. Time is ticking away, I'm just sitting there somehow, this is okay in vaccine mandate land. Um, now what I notice is that the waitress comes over and she of course is wearing a mask to the couple and they order, but without moving their masks, like their mask is still covering their mouth and nose, they order. And then the waitress walks away and the couple continues to sit there wearing their masks, talking to each other, having trouble hearing each other. Now, in the meantime, at the other table, the younger man, who appeared to be the son of the older couple, decides that he needs to use the bathroom. So he stands up. Now, in order to walk about 20 steps to the men's room, he puts his mask on. And he walks past the, the waitress, nods his head, he goes in, he goes to the bathroom. And now while he's in there, the waitress brings over a couple of miso soups to the white couple that are still wearing masks. Now, I didn't look at them right away because I noticed that the guy was coming out of the bathroom, still masked. 
I assume he took the mask off, possibly in the bathroom. I don't know. Maybe COVID doesn't isn't allowed in bathrooms. And now he walks masked about 20 steps back to the table where he takes the mask off, sits back down, and engages in a lively conversation just a couple of feet away from three other people. And again, this is science in clown world. Now, at this moment, my eyes went over to the couple sitting at the table. And what they are doing is pulling the mask down to their chin, taking a spoonful of soup, putting that in their mouth, putting the spoon down, and immediately pulling the mask up. And I guess the soup, maybe it wasn't miso soup. There was something like dumplings or something in it. So they're chewing and eating the soup with the mask covering their face. So now they have my full attention. My food hasn't arrived yet. So again, I'm sitting there unmasked, unvaxxed, waiting for my food, and that's okay in science clown world. But I'm looking at this couple, and now I realize that they are doing this over and over, pulling the mask down a tiny bit, scooping up some soup, pouring it in their mouth, pulling the mask right back up, and chewing the dumplings or whatever as they go along. And I think the woman noticed that I gazed, that I was gazing at them, but she seemed unperturbed by that, as, as if this was the most normal and logical behavior of all time. At that point, the waitress, you know, maybe I was there, honestly, at least 12 minutes. So this is a place where you're not allowed in there <laughs> without a mask or a vaccine card ever, unless you're doing takeout, because then you could come in maskless and vaxless and sit next to everyone else for 15 minutes. So the woman gives me the food and wishes me Merry Christmas. And I glance one more time at the soup eating couple and they're still doing their thing. And I just felt an immense sadness. Um, I'm not picking on them individually, although I am. There was, you, you can't help but judge somebody who is behaving this way. And this is one year after the supposed miracle drug has arrived. And so I just, I try very, very hard to not internalize this or not get um, bitter or cynical about it because there's no value in that. And to try and feel some compassion for people who have been almost literally frightened to death, but frightened enough to the point that they would do anything, Dr. Fauci and uh, Rachel Walensky of the CDC and so on recommends. I mean, I feel confident that they would do literally anything that they recommend because what I witnessed in that restaurant um, took things to an entirely new level. And just to add to that, I recently posted an article on my Substack in which I talked about how New York City right now, and I'm recording this in late December, it'll be released in early January, but it is virtually indistinguishable from 12 months ago at this exact time period. Like when I'm walking around and there's a lot of urgent care places near me for some reason, and I will see near all of these, like long, I mean long around the corner, long, socially distanced lines of double masked people waiting to just become a useful statistic by taking a frighteningly flawed COVID test. Now, I guess you can't help but wonder that some of them might have been um, told that they can't go visit a relative unless they could show a, a negative test or something. And they, so they feel coerced into it, or perhaps their boss told them something like that. But, but it's not just that. I could just be walking down the street, minding my own business, and someone's walking towards me a good distance from me, 12 feet away maybe, because on a wide sidewalk, and they have their mask down around their chin. But once they see me and I'm not masked, they instantly 
dramatically and, and demonstrably yank their mask up over their nose and mouth as if germs can jump randomly from a person passing you about 12 feet away and infect you. Also, as if, even if that were true, as if a mask could stop it. it so it's mind boggling. And then you can't, many, many stores, they won't let you in unless you wear a mask you know, I put one on at the door. And if I'm just walking around where it is perfectly legal in outside anywhere in New York to walk around without a mask, there are, there's no, there's no overarching mask mandate. It's only for indoor venues that don't have a vaccine mandate. So I'm just walking around, minding my business, do walk into the laundromat or something. And people will gape at me with either a shocked look or a, or a dirty look because I don't have a mask on. And when you, in, when I'm in a supermarket or I'm in a laundromat or even in the hallway of my own building and I just overhear conversations, it's just COVID and variants and vaccines. We just don't, the New Yorkers just don't stop talking about this. It just cultivates a general state of panic because fear is ruling the day. I mean, I have literally been outside walking at 5.30 a.m. and while I'm walking on, on these dark, desolate streets, perhaps I encounter one other person. That might be, they might be walking like across the street from me, or they might be waiting at a, in their car waiting at a red light. But you could rest assured, whether it's walking or inside a car, they will be wearing at least one mask. And I just want to gently say to them that this pandemic will only end when you stop complying. It ends when you recognize that agreeing to the concept of emergency powers guarantees that there will always be an emergency. I mean, there's always an emergency. So my, my plea in 2022 is that instead of caving into a campaign of fear and division, just Embrace each and every moment as an opportunity for growth and magic and connection and passion and kindness, kindness and love. Because if COVID truly was a threat to all humans, why go out cowering in fear and hating anyone who chooses to remain free? So again, as we enter 2022, I'll leave you with these words from Albert Camus. Quote, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion, close quote. So please join us. I'll be right back with Sean Siebold. Hello, Postwoke listeners. Mickey Z here inviting you to get involved. You can find me at mickeyz.substack.com. Com. You can get the exact spelling of that. It's in the show notes. But you can join my Substack at any time. You can subscribe for as little as $5 a month. And as a paid subscriber, you will get all the new podcasts earlier than anyone else. You will get all the articles I write, which is at least once a week. You'll have permission to comment on any and all posts that you choose. And also, you'll be really supporting this growing project. I guarantee you that in 2022, Postwoke is going to grow. It's going to explode. And if you want to be a part of it, go to mickeyz.substack.com to subscribe now. Now, if $5 a month is not something you can afford now, you can subscribe for free. In that case, you will get emails every time there is a podcast or article available for you to read or listen to. And I would 
please urge you to do that if you can't afford to be a paid subscriber. And either way, whether you choose to pay or not, I'm requesting that you share this content, that you let people know that this is a podcast you listen to, that you like, and that you want the other people to listen to. You want to share this message of intellectual self-defense. So I thank you in advance for all your support, and I look forward to interacting with you all throughout 2022. just heard is merely a small sampling of what Sean Seabold can do. He and I met on Facebook thanks to friend of the podcast, Allison Gray. It was partly Sean's bio that inspired me to invite him onto the show. Among other things, it, it lists his credentials, multimedia artist, musician, sound engineer, producer, entrepreneur, music teacher, and quantum mentalist. Sean Seabold, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's an honor. Ah, I'm glad to have you here. So before we get into the quantum mentalist part, I want you to tell us what, what we need to know about that clip we just played and your music in general. Great. Okay. Well, um, sure. Uh, the song is called Mystica, and it's a song that I had written. Uh, I, actually, I started it last year in 2020, and um, I'm just about finished with it but that's going to be uh, a song off of my next release uh, from one of my music projects called Mizik Sen and that's spelled M-I-Z-Z-I-K-S-E-N and that's uh, basically um, kind of a, uh, a nod to musician, music Sean uh, and kind of a strange formation of sounds but uh, that's Kind of what that means there's not really any more to it but um i'm working on a follow-up release it's going to be i think my fifth release for that nice and, uh, so that that'll be coming next year as well okay let me let me also interject for the listeners that if they go to the show notes there will be a collection of links there for everything you need to know whatever sean mentions during the show there will be a link there for you to find out more information so um do you want to tell us a little bit more about your music career or should we jump into quantum mentalism? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, just, I guess, uh, you know, music is obviously a, a large part of my life. I started, um, I started out as an artist when I was, um, as early as I can remember. Um, probably I was painting on the walls and annoying my parents. <laughs> um, but at some point, um, when I was a teenager, I had, I don't know, something happened. I just was like, I want to try to write a whole song. And I don't know where that came from. And I just kind of uh, just jumped into it. And I f found, you know, the the shortest distance for me to be able to make that, which turned out to be a computer at that time. It was like about 1996. So okay. uh, it was pretty rudimentary back then. And uh, so I just worked with loops, um, you know, like one of these early programs called Acid Pro. Some other musicians out there may remember that. And I just started working with loops and layering stuff. And I was really bad at the time, uh, but I had a lot of fun. It was, there was something really magical about it. Um, making something that didn't exist that now I can listen to that affects me. And uh, 
it just kind of snowballed from there. I, it now just I, I've been doing it ever since, and um, it's great. So at that time in the '90s, when you got this desire to do this and follow through, which is awesome, did you have um, particular influences or musical role models that inspired you in a particular way to uh, write? In, in a specific genre or was it really just something that was spontaneous and just music that was in you? You know, you know there was certainly influences. Um, at, you know, I think back then, like, um, well, Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, I, you know, okay. he was one of these like solo artists that he would just write everything himself. And I think finding out about musicians like that at the time gave me some um, guidance or some inspiration that, you know, I don't necessarily have to involve a whole band because at the time I wasn't good enough to play with other musicians, or so I thought. Probably true though. And uh, so learning about that gave me some inspiration. And, um, you know, among a lot of other artists like um, The Cure and, oh, I wasn't thinking about naming all these influences. <laughs> it's but, okay. Yeah, but, uh, you know, a lot of those style, there was just something about the, the, um, emotion behind it the you know as a teenager listening to nine inch nails that kind of matched my angst at the time um, i could see that sure yeah yeah but uh but yeah ever since then i just kind of carved my own path um, musically and found my own way and i just wanted to write stuff that i've never heard before and challenged myself that way I love the sound of that. And in my own way, as a writer, I can relate to that. You know, I'm older than you, but going back to the pre-internet days, um, there was a huge movement called zines where people would put together um, basically photocopied pages of their own magazines. And once I realized that that DIY was a thing, as you were saying, the same way that you can record everything yourself, that you could cut out the middleman. You're not, you're not looking for a publisher and so on. Like you could put together your own magazine and there were, there were other magazines that covered it and would, we would do trades. And that's how I got to know people all over the world. And in a, in a strange way, kind of it kind of leads me all the way up to the podcast in a sense where I'm able, you know, besides having excellent guests like you on, I, I, most of this process is something that I can learn as I go and, and be in charge of my own destiny. So I can relate to your entry point into music that way. Not that we don't have influences, but I like the idea of, of uh, kind of controlling what you, what the, the direction you want to go in. So that's, that's really cool. And I encourage people to, again, to go to the show notes. There are a lot of links in there to learn more about, Sean's music. So um, now I am curious. We, we had we chatted before this conversation and and came up with some concepts of what we wanted to talk about. And I do want to know more about um, also your your the quantum mentalist, as I said, the spiritual side, consciousness. Just I know that you you think about a lot of interesting topics in a very deep way. So um, why don't we why don't we begin with um, you mentioned to me about a personal consciousness shift that you had in 2009, which seems to kind of have tentacles that will lead to a lot of other directions we can go in. So can we start there with you telling us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Sure. Um, so yeah, this happened in 2009 and, um, it kind of, I, I call it the beginning of my spiritual journey. It, um, it has laid the groundwork for who I am today. Um, and, uh, so where do I begin? It's, um, I'll start with, okay. So I was working at this, um, um, 
digital photo printer company at the time. And uh, I was also just had started doing uh, hospice volunteering. And it, I remember it was a Friday and I just had this urge uh, to write and I wasn't sure what. And it was just kind of a strange urge. And uh, after work, it, I decided to head to the uh, office supply store and I bought four dry erase boards, uh, large ones. And as soon as I got home, I put them on the wall and I grab a marker and just all of a sudden I'm just writing. And I don't know what I'm writing necessarily. <laughs> like it's just coming out of me. Wow. And um, I have since, what, what I realized about that was I had since realized that that was what I'd call channeling. And okay. uh, what was coming out of me was just not stuff that I had planned to write. It's not um, so stuff that I was taught. But it was information. It was like it seemed like it was advanced information for me. It was at the time. It was advanced because it was higher knowledge, and it was, you know, you can imagine my surprise and shock that this was coming out of me, and and so that that's what started this whole thing for me. And um, not to mention that was day one of five days of this euphoria that I felt. And um, this five days, thankfully, that went away because I just don't think I could function in society if that had continued on. <laughs> it doesn't but, sound sustainable. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Uh, however blissful it was, it just, you know, I, I couldn't handle that long term. So eventually, like, it just kind of dissipated and I w became a little bit more grounded. But what I had experienced stayed with me this whole time. And I had realized that uh, something really profound happened. And to this day, I still think about that and try to figure out what, what happened, what, you know, can I repeat that? Can I duplicate it for other people? And, um, you know, it really felt like an upgrade of sorts. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term uh, like walk-in, like a soul walk-in. No, I that haven't. Please elaborate. Yeah, that, that occurred to me just the other day for the first time. Um, you know, there, there, there are discussions on the internet about having soul walk-ins that, you know, like a soul will enter a body where like the other soul leaves. I don't know how much I buy into that exactly. Um, but what I do know is, you know, I'm still here. I'm still the same old Sean that everybody grew up with and, and knows. But I also felt like something more like happened to me, like I was enhanced or that it was like an upgrade. Um, wow. And I say that because like all of a sudden I'm thinking on a whole different level than I used to. Um, the way I'm thinking it changed. Uh, I just felt like that's, I think we're asking about quantum that's kind of a description of what, what became of my, my mind. Uh, whereas before I might have been a little bit more linear, now I'm a bit more multidimensional. But I made a jump of some sort. On, in more practical terms, I feel like I went from an old paradigm to a new paradigm of thinking. And so, so let, me, let me interrupt you for a second. Sure. So, so prior to this five-day experience, the type of stuff you were writing on the whiteboards and the type of stuff that you were thinking about intensely, had these topics or issues entered into your consciousness in in a viable and knowable way prior to that did you feel well, you were yes. building up to this kind of kind of like i guess i was 
primed and ready for something like this to happen. I, you know, for a long time, I had uh, resonated or identified as kind of like a, a, a young philosopher. I had just a lot of those kind of thoughts. I even wrote a, a philosophy paper called Get Philosophucked back when I was like <laughs> 20 years old. And that was just for fun. I just had just all these thoughts I wanted to kind of compile into a single paper. And, uh, and I, I didn't grow up with a religion. You know, my parents really gave me that gift of finding my own way and they didn't impose anything on me. So I appreciate them for that. So maybe that's what helped me to just stay wow. open-minded about a lot of these kind of ideas. But what I'm saying is that what I grew up with, the, the society that I lived with, there was no mention or uh, anything about what happened to me, like that that was even possible that there was a, a particular kind of consciousness shift or a jump like that that can occur to somebody. So when it happened to me, it was just out of the blue and I had to kind of find my own way. Wow. And uh, I annoyed my coworkers at the time because when this happened to me, it, w it, it knocked me down in a good way, but I just couldn't stop talking about it. And um, eventually it, it kind of, caused me to have to leave the company because I was, it was so hard for me to focus on my job at that point. Uh, knowing I can imagine. What, yeah. Knowing that something like this can happen at all. And it, it sounds like something that people consciously seek out through like um, ayahuasca or, or psych, other psychedelics, like consciously seek out, but to have it almost spontaneously. I mean, not almost, it's not spontaneous because anyone that's writing a philosophy paper at 20 years old for fun seems like they would be open to this type of um, shift. But it, it still seemed, like you said, it kind of just floored you. And then, boom, you have to function in like brick and mortar reality, day-to-day -day life. And, and, uh, and you ended up leaving the company. That's fascinating. Yeah, I had to find my own way and I had to find that balance. And part of, you know, I didn't have to leave the company, but I did choose to because at the time I realized um, what had occurred to me opened some doors of possibilities. And so I kind of like took that leap of faith to step out of, you know, I was with that company for about five years and it just felt like it was time to just face the unknown. And so I did. And that's how I ended up working in hospice at, after that. Wow. That's a fascinating transition in and of itself. Now, do you want to elaborate on that? Like what led you into that, um, obviously very unusual and challenging environment. Sure. Yeah. Um, as I was saying, I, I started out hospice volunteering and that's what I was doing at the time that that shift happened. So I have a, a, a theory that my doing that volunteer work contributed to this spontaneous shift in consciousness. Yes. Um, because my first time seeing a patient and I just remember I'd never done anything like that before. When I was finished with that visit, I went out to my car and I just, I just, I was, I was weeping. It was just wow. some, something just really profound. It hit me. It hit me in my heart space. And so I think that I had some kind of like a heart opening at that time. So I encourage people, like if they're interested in volunteer work and they're, you know, up for a challenge and they want to grow, hospice volunteering is a great way to um, kindle some of that possibility uh, you, you know interesting prior to the the whole lockdown pandemic thing i looked into that 
And there was a program here in New York City that I applied, but it's actually probably a really positive thing. Only something like 30 people get chosen, but annually over 1,500 people apply, which I found very encouraging that there were people who wanted to do this very important and potentially life-altering work. And I wasn't one of the people chosen. And my quote-unquote backup was I started doing friendly visits instead with homebound seniors in my neighborhood, which unfortunately the whole pandemic thing, you know, that that whole program got knocked out of whack. But I, my only real experience was that my mom, prior to her passing away, um, was in a hospice. And it was even as a guest and interacting with the people who were there, whether they were uh, employees or volunteers, really was life altering. And I can, I told, I would say to people constantly, like, I felt like I was walking with angels in there. The, and it, it, there was, it's, I couldn't agree with you more. There, it's very difficult to articulate what that environment is like. And having spent a short time there with my mom, it's, it, cha- it did change me forever. Yeah, I, and I, it's funny you say that. I feel like I work with angels, just the kind of people that, uh, at my current hospice and the former one too. Uh, this is, uh, I jumped back into hospice after working there for seven years. So this new company I'm with is just amazing. And, um, you know, it is, it's really hard work. And I love being um, part of the support group for that team because um, I can't imagine like what it takes to to be on the front lines as they are i just did volunteering and now i just work in the office but um but i'm around it a lot and it's it is amazing work no i fully concur um all right so now am i uh, go back to some of the stuff we talked about discussing and i'm trying to keep some sense of uh connectivity here and perhaps even chronological uh, integrity there there you mentioned to me that there was a a progressive direction in your mind where you were thinking about the education system and a redesign of the education system. Is this something that grew out of this shift? And whether it is or not, would you like to share your thoughts on this very, very important topic? Yes, um, I'd love to. It's, it's, it, it turned into a passion of mine. I didn't really ever think that I had a passion for the education system. I was, you know, I'm um, 42 now. And so I grew up in, um, you know, most of the education system, I think most of our listeners would have experienced. And I think we can all agree there's a lot of parts about it that's just awful. Yes. And all short. And um, knowing what I know and what I've learned over the last decade, the education system glosses over a lot of really important things. And so after this shift in consciousness that I had, I was so bewildered and uh, gobsmacked that I just wanted to understand what happened to me. And I was even desperate to have some satisfying answers. But in that examination of what I what had happened to me, I wanted to reverse engineer it. I wanted to find out, is this something that I can share with others is this you know because if the whole planet you know hypothetically uh, maybe even unrealistically if the whole planet experienced a similar kind of upgrade in the way their mind works we'd be living on a completely different planet right now and so i thought about like can that be done what's possible and i think just even being open to that idea, I had a lot of ideas just come to me. And so I would just write them down. And um, over time, a, a kind of 
structure form started to develop about what this education system could look like. And the more I thought about it, the more ideas came to me. And I just started to feel like maybe I'm meant to redesign this because I was thinking about almost every detail of what an education system needs, especially a good one. And um, I'll give you a, just a, a kind of a very bare bones, basic structure. Yes, and, please. You know, hopefully like, you know, this is for everyone. I, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to, to hoard this, but there's a lot to it. But the idea is that, you know, we are all human and we all experience reality from these bodies. And so uh, the idea is to develop a curriculum that is based on the five senses. Um, everything that we observe about our reality comes from the way we experience life from these bodies. So the curriculum would be broken down to like sight, feel, hearing, smelling, and you know, eating or taste. And the different classes would be based on what you can learn from each one of those things. So like feeling would be like the study of emotion, the study of textures and mass, study of biology. Sight could be, you know, well, like why do we see how light works? Um, what kind of influence does it have? Maybe even learning about light and dark. Um, of course, hearing, you can like learn a lot about sound. Uh, I'm still learning about sound and I've been involved with music and sound for a long time there's so much to it and uh you know you could be learning about that your whole life so you it, i i thought that just starting over and you know learning about life and the world around us from these bodies also has the benefit of um relating to the world from these bodies so that there's less dissociation going on and our experience, especially with each other. Wow. Um, the, I, it, it never crossed my mind to have a curriculum based on the five senses. And based on what you said before, I'm sure there will be a certain amount of six sense stuff in there too. But as you were speaking, I was thinking like in the site section, um, like it, the, the, it's limitless. Like you can, like you said, it, you can talk about color and light and dark, but you can also get into a more abstract sense of vision and, and visualizing and like, like, you know, expanding on the concept of sight or when you're talking about hearing, improving your listening skills and becoming a better communicator. It's, it's, it seems so obvious and practical once you say it, but you're literally the first person I've ever heard, um, discuss this, but it's, it's obviously unlike anything that I experienced in school, which was pretty much cookie cutter. It was, it was, you know, at certain grades, you hit certain milestones and you have to get a percentage of math, science, English, and history or social studies. And, and you, you know, I have a very good memory. So I just, I just memorized what I need to memorize to pass the tests. And in many cases, just forgot it afterwards. And this right. sounds like it would enhance my existence in in the sensory world yes that's the whole point of it i i and, and this is again this is all coming back to in my own personal examination of what happened to me i was trying to um illustrate in whatever way i could what happened and um and so the again coming back to the quantum mentalist label um it's just a description but it I realized that I went from a linear mindset to a quantum multidimensional mindset. And 
that applies to how I think about stuff. And I realized how can I how can I make this into um, something that is shareable that you know, that can be benefited from. And so I think that this whole education system kind of came about from that. And I have two large books of notes that I have made over the years. And, you know, right down to, you know, like there would be a classroom. Um, each classroom would be taught with two teachers instead of one. And you have two so that you can see, um, you can have the multi-layered experience of how two people can work together and, and sync how they collaborate with one another as like in a partnership so that there's not one teacher that's just overloaded. That's just trying to handle everything themselves. Uh, you're now giving the experience of two people can work together and you can see how they work with each other and you can, see, you know, witness the dynamic and play. I love that idea because it normalizes for children, the idea that um, the person at the front of the class doesn't know everything and it, it gets, they're not a dictatorial teacher. They have a, a, a collaborator and perhaps they might disagree on certain things and you get to watch them work it out in real time and doesn't set you up then for a lifetime of being gullible to listening and believing leaders. And it, it sounds like a fascinating way to, to like very, very almost magical way to, keep children from becoming compliant consumers and citizens. And But to backtrack, you said you wrote, you have two books worth, and I know that connecting it back to what you said earlier, where you had this desire to write and you did it on the erase boards, um, um, you, now you had, I think you mentioned you said you were working on some writing. Maybe this was before we came on, but is this is this something that you – see yourself putting together to share with people as a, a, a book or a, maybe a audio recording or something like that, where this, obviously this kind of information would be incredibly useful to have it out there. Yes. Yeah. I'm, uh, that is the plan. And, uh, I, I feel like maybe later on in my life, I'm meant to open up a school and then maybe, uh, administrate all of this at some point, you know, that's, way down the line. Right now, I've kind of been doing some preliminary research like into Montessori and uh, other school education systems, just get some notes and like do some comparative, comparative research and uh, see like, you know, what can I improve? You know, am I even bringing something original to the table or not? But at some point, uh, I'll need help along the way. And, you know, our mutual friend, Allison, uh, we had kind of an idea to um, she, that she would help me with this. She's got some background and experience that would be perfect for that. So that was kind of one of those synchronistic uh, meetings as well. Um, so I do have some help that has already started to appear in my life. Uh, beyond that, I think it just, I'm, I'm letting this naturally just evolve and grow into how it needs to. And um, but yeah, right now it's just two, I, I say books, but they're just um, notebooks where you can like slide in pages into like clear, um, I don't know what they're called, uh, sleeve protectors. Yeah. yeah so just all the yeah. notes, like, you know, like post-it notes or just anything that I could write <laughs> on when these ideas came to me, I just threw it all together and there's no like 
structure to it at all. It sounds like the conspiracy theory meme, right? With the when the guy's got all the connections on the it wall. It is, it is. Yeah. It's just like that. And it's just as messy. <laughs> but I mean that's where that's where it comes from. I, I well, let me just first ask this question. If this were prior to 2009, could you have ever imagined yourself theorizing about a a dramatically different form of education? Is this something that you had pondered before? Or once again, is this a result of this this, uh, massive shift, five-day shift that changed the way you you, uh, think about the world? Before that shift, no, I would not have imagined doing something of this scale. Um, so this this absolutely came from that that shift in two thousand and nine, and um, I you know I I had mentioned channeling. I also had a very unusual experience in meditation. Uh, I think probably within the first three months, three or four months since that shift happened. And I had uh, been meditating, and all of a sudden, I had this. What do I say about it? It's it was like a message. It was like a a a, a blink of a communication of some sort that happened within me, and I it it was instantaneous. But I translated it as, um, "Yes, there is a God. You've been asleep. It's time to wake up." Exactly like that. Wow. I've not deviated from that translation. It was always exactly that. And uh, before that, I would have called myself an agnostic um, because that was my safest, most comfortable label to give myself. I, um, like, as I said, I wasn't religious. Uh, I had a philosophical mind, but I was still like, you know, kind of searching, but also the, the demands of society tugged on me just as it, it does everyone. So I didn't really have um, an impetus to conclude anything. I didn't have anything to conclude with until that happened to me. So that really just opened me up to that there's some strange stuff going on on the planet. <laughs> and uh, that gave me, you know, in terms of like hope, you know, that gave me hope that, you know, there's a lot more going on than we realize. And um, I've since met a lot of people that have had similar experiences of their own. And and everybody's different. Everybody's unique. So everybody has their own unique experience regarding awakening. And, uh, I, you know, that term gets tossed around a lot, awakening. What does that actually mean? And I think it's like you go from a state of unconsciousness to consciousness, Unconscious, yes. conscious, and uh, that's just, uh, it almost seems very like natural in a way. Um, you know, we go to sleep every night and then we wake up in the morning. That's on a more like physical, practical side, but there is also a state of awareness that that can happen with. And that's been written about in texts throughout the centuries. So it's not a new idea at all, but it happened to me. And so I have first-hand personal experience of it and what has occurred since then has been proof that what happened to me was profound and you know if i have anything uh, of a message to give to the world it's that there's some exciting things happening on the planet to i guess anyone it can happen to anyone and um i you know i'm gonna do something good with it you already are i i i'm it, it, to, to, to go to what you said there, it, th- these ideas may or may not be 
new in a in a literal sense you know your interpretation and your vision of them of course is new and unique to you but it says an awful lot about our culture and our dominant culture and our society that they can feel new until you come out and talk about what you experience because then you have the inevitable glorious moment when other people listen to you and say, oh, you too? Or I had my version of this and you realize that people you pass by, I'll use pass by on the street because I live in an urban area. You could be walking down the street and you don't realize that 10 people you passed in that day are just keeping it to themselves that they had some type of experience like this because we're kind of, not kind of, we are conditioned to not talk about this stuff out loud. It's crazy. It's woo woo. And we don't, but meanwhile, Everyone on some level is experiencing this, and I commend you for coming out and talking about it and being very open to it and being so receptive to where it's taking you because it's the only way to to normalize it is if people from all walks of life talk about these experiences and then suddenly it's it's like we have this collectively we have this massive thing in common where and it opens up a, a completely new layer of communication so and then when you bring in the education system it's like you you're now encouraging the younger generation to be receptive to these types of consciousness shifts or to rephrase that maybe the kids don't need as much as a consciousness shift as as the adults because they haven't had it beaten out of them yet so the your type of educational system would be encouraging them to remain the the the, the open-minded beginner's mind type of, of being that most kids are. So I I find it fascinating. The potential here is is mind-blowing where, where where this can go. And I love having these conversations now publicly because it's indirectly giving people permission to talk about their thoughts that maybe they thought were were not meant for public consumption. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's nothing, uh, you know, from my experience, what I would say, there's nothing like um, weird about it. It's just, it almost seems like, oh yeah, you know, like a flower eventually blooms when the time is right. You know, we as people don't think of ourselves as flowers, but why wouldn't we have the same kind of evol uh, evolution dynamic in some hmm. capacity? Um, you know, and I, I do agree that our society, the way it's structured, uh, the demands that are imposed upon us, that it doesn't give us the kind of uh, opportunity to discuss these things. You know, the people that I go, you know, pass by at the grocery store, you know, I give them my debit card and pay for my groceries. That's, you know, a 30 second interaction. I can't talk about all this stuff with them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it's so it's so like those conversations could be so essential and so crucial and the potential exists but it requires a fair amount of patience you sound like a very patient human being i, I admire that where where you're just like you know in my lifetime i'm going to work on this education thing and I, and it may not be right now and we live in a society where people don't put off um whether it's public public displays of what they're doing from a meal or what new clothes they bought or what goals they have. Everything seems to be some sense of how soon can it happen, instant gratification. But to have the mentality of letting a flower uh, you know, go through its cycle and blossoming requires a certain amount of patience, which brings us back to that whole 
five senses where we're more in touch with what we're feeling and thinking and seeing and smelling and tasting, we, I think that would encourage a mindset where we wouldn't feel uh, really just mindless urgency. Like we just, we seem to, as a culture, we just seem to be in a hurry, but not really to go anywhere in particular. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm, plus I'll admit, I, you know, based on my awakening and it, it, it turned me into a spiritual person. And from what I have learned about since then, I adopted the belief that we have lived before and we will live again. So there's a, an afterlife and a before life, reincarnation. And uh, in a way, I'm, I'm expecting and already planning on coming back to the planet. A lot of people say, oh, this is you know, my last lifetime. I'm not coming back. I do believe I am. And I want to, uh, I want to leave this planet better than I found it if I can. And uh, if I can even get this education system implemented and going, I'd love to take my own curriculum <laughs> when I get back because I know it's going to be <laughs> awesome. Too. It's, it's going to match so like my- Sign up now in advance for the next yeah, yeah. Next I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, That sounds I mean, amazing. It's exciting be because the, the way this is structured, it, it grounds you in your body. It, like I said, doesn't, there's no dissociative, dissociative um, risks. Um, it, it makes you enjoy the experience, um, especially with like the eating taste side of that curriculum. You can learn nutrition. You, know, you can um, learn about ingredients and cooking and uh, how foods can heal your body. And there's a lot of different types of vegetables that can heal all kinds of things going on within you. So why these, you know, our current education system has not done that, I don't know. We can chalk it up to incompetence or they just weren't there at that level. You know, there no I don't want to insult or do anything like that um because I'm just this random guy on the planet and these ideas are just coming to me. So uh I don't know why they haven't, but maybe it's just they weren't open to it. And yeah, that could be, I, there's a reason for that too. But like, maybe this is the time on the planet that now we're ready for this kind of thing. Well, all right. Well, well, as, as we begin to get closer to wrapping up, I do want, I think you just gave me the perfect segue there. Another topic that you s suggested we touch on was a phrase that was the great shift of our time. So were you just about, <laughs> when you said this might be the time for this type of shift, is that sort of what you were getting at? And is that something you can elaborate on? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, so I, I call that, you know, this the great shift of our time because um, what occurred to me uh, in that awakening and what, what happened with me, I realized was happening to other people too. And if if I zoom out a little bit and I take a look at, the planet as a whole, I realize, okay, what what's actually happening here and what are the potentials of a mass awakening like this? Um, and it just feels like somehow we're breaking out of this old paradigm. I, I When I had my first shift uh, in 2009, I say first, I think I've had a, a small one since then. But when I had okay. that, I looked up on the internet a paradigm shift, and there was a great example of um, what does that actually mean. And so if you take like, like let's say a six-year-old child, and you have uh, you know, shoes that fit them, 
if you never change out those shoes as they grow, their feet are going to just continue to grow inside those shoes. And eventually the foot will maybe, you know, be a little bit deformed or it starts to be a little bit painful until the, uh, the, the, the seams burst and then the foot just kind of breaks free. That's a paradigm shift, mm. uh, a good a visual for what's happening on the planet. There's a lot of obsolete, outdated systems that just don't work anymore. And eventually, I think we're just going to outgrow them. But what are we going to grow into, I think, is we're going to feel like there's more space, there's more room to breathe, almost like your lung capacity just grew, and now you can breathe in more air. I think it's going to feel like that. I mean, in in a, in, a, in my own way, I feel like I'm experiencing that and witnessing that as more and more people begin to question the current narrative and and recognize how institutions that they trusted are patently and obviously not trustworthy. And I feel like that that these institutions let's 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 name them like like uh, politics and media and corporate power and big farmer and so on are like those restrictive shoes. They're trying to keep us locked in there. And some people are just afraid to burst through. But as more and more of us begin to burst through and begin to say, hey, you know, there's a lot of air to breathe out here and there's other ways of looking at this. We, I hope more people will do that. However, to bring it back to your point, history has shown us that if there isn't some basic structure or paradigm to discuss at that point, it can just move from one dysfunctional paradigm into another. And so I think that that's where your, your what palpable patience kind of pays, uh, kind of comes in here, where it sounds to me where you recognize that we do need a major change, but if it's, if it's just almost spontaneous without any structure at all, it could just be cataclysmic. And that a type of an education system like the one you're talking about would lay the groundwork where we would be ready pre more 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 prepared to make a a, a paradigm shift. That's that yeah. makes sense to you. Yes, it makes perfect sense. And and part of this uh, education system is meant to uh, reveal your own empowerment. It's it's meant to um, have you embrace your own sovereignty, and that's what these systems that you were just discussing don't want for us because they're, they're profiting off of us. Uh, they're profiting off of our ignorance. Um, the, and, and it's, you know, it's human nature. They want to continue their lifestyles. They've become accustomed to it or they've crossed the line that they can't return. So they have everything to lose if uh, there was great change. Um, but, you know, it must happen. We have to do it. Uh, as a species. And, uh, you know, we've never actually had on the planet, we've never lived without a ruling class of some kind. So I think this education system could really lay the groundwork for a new kind of human being that, you know, doesn't require a, a ruling class. You know, I don't need somebody giving me orders. I know exactly what to do and how to do it. And as long as I'm not harming anybody, you know, it's fine. Uh, yeah. I think we can all figure it out together. Yeah, and it sounds like it's a it's a excellent counterbalance to the direction that the powers that 
shouldn't be are aiming us now sort of into the transhumanism and into this belief that that humanity is is inherently flawed and therefore has to be quote unquote improved through um, mechanics and industry and science and I agree with you we already we're born with with what we need to create an equitable society and for where people can l reach their potential and live in cooperation but it's it's the outside structures that that shatter that and i like the idea of of you know continuing this conversation and i do hope you you you've just kind of opened my mind to so many different thoughts here about education i would would love for you to, to consider coming back in the relatively near future so we could elaborate on this and also as you have more and more revelations and add to this to this um blueprint you have for an education system so i'd love to continue this conversation in the near future i would love to yeah thank you yeah, it's fantastic. Sean, it was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. And is there anything, um, like I said, that your your links and all will be in the show notes, but is there anything else you want to say to the listeners before we wrap up? Um, I think I just, you know, my message of that there's, there's a lot more to life than society um, implies or suggests and to stay curious and, you know, look within yourself trust yourself and there's a lot of information out there as well put yourself on a journey and see what can happen fantastic well thank you again sean it was a pleasure and i will be right back after this short break We have some cool news here at Post Woke. If you go to the show notes, you will find a link for merchandise, more specifically, a Post Woke Hello Free Thinkers t-shirt for only $19.99. I am requesting that you check it out, that you buy the shirt, that you buy it for others as a gift, you wear it around, and you start conversations about this podcast, and you spread the word about intellectual self-defense. So again, the link is in the show notes and I really appreciate your support. It's a cool shirt, a cool design, and um, it will be really awesome is if you do order it, please be sure to send me a selfie to the email address that's in the show notes. So I appreciate your support and let's get back to the show. She's watching the detectives. Please allow me to introduce a disclaimer. To follow is not a philosophical or woke discussion of the police. Contrary to po current popular belief, you can tell a tale about law enforcement without taking a detour into social justice warrior territory. Anyway, in my youth, it was very common for the guys I hung around with to seek out city jobs, you know, police, fire department, sanitation, etc. Steady pay, good benefits, and full retirement pension after 20 years. These were the perks back in my day. I'm not sure how many of those perks still hold true today. Anyway, like a good blue-collar Queens native, I took all the civil service tests. However, I did this mostly to appease my parents. Mom and dad could never understand why I'd waste all my potential by not going to college. No one ever truly believed I would make it as a writer, actor, whatever. So I took the tests as a fallback plan of sorts. 
Funny thing though, when you take a test, sometimes you do well and the job actually wants you. Case in point, that time I almost accidentally joined the NYPD. The first step was a written test and the NYPD exam was frighteningly easy. I still think of that test every time I cross paths with a cop. I aced it and this led to me being contact to see, contacted to see if I wanted to participate in the physical. You, you have to have medical exams, of course, but there was also a test that involved an obstacle course, feats of strength and endurance and all that. I was in peak martial arts shape at the time and earned a top score without breaking a sweat. Again, the bar was set so low as to be distressing. I also still think of the test every time I cross paths with a cop. To my surprise and discomfort, I was rapidly moving along in a process I did not want to explore. My dad was a well-connected federal agent at the time. He promised me he'd pull some strings and get me assigned to teach self-defense at the police academy. This sounded uh, tolerable. So even so, I'd first have to put in a little time on the streets before I got such a cushy gig. My screenwriting and acting dreams were not exactly manifesting yet. So I kept referring to this potential self-defense position as my second option. Next step, a written psychological exam. This was the first nuanced step I encountered on my journey towards becoming one of New York City's finest. Many of the questions required serious contemplation, but of course you had to correctly discern which answer, which answer they would prefer. I took my time and must have done something right because I was soon called in for a one-on-one -on -one interview with a police psychologist. To be blunt, I was starting to wonder if I had painted myself into an inescapable corner. By then I was working at as a personal trainer at the Vertical Club, New York City's ritziest health club, surrounded by the Big Apple's movers and shakers. My head was filled with big dreams and the NYPD definitely did not fit into any of them. I arrived for the psychological interview and was greeted by a very attractive African-American psychologist who looked barely older than me. We hit it off right away, and the hour-long interview was way more fun than I expected. Before long, as she listened to me blab about myself, she stopped and asked, tell me, why did you apply for this job? She saw right through me. I tried a few canned answers about serving my community, but she just quietly nodded. By the time I left, she had asked for my number. To talk about hiring you as my personal trainer, she assured me. I was stoked, but I knew, and she knew, two things. She would never call me for ethical and professional reasons. And I had zero interest in being a cop. My personal training career was gaining some momentum and I was simultaneously working on a chance to be in a real martial arts flick to be filmed in California. But I still followed through on the next NYPD step. This was an orientation of sorts. I don't recall all the details, but we got a tour of the academy and ended up being broken, broken up into smaller groups. Me and about 30 other potential recruits were sent to a classroom to hear a lecture from a veteran cop to get a feel for what the job is really like, they promised. This dude delivered, big time. He was white, maybe mid-40s, right out of central casting as a grizzled, bitter New York cop. He spoke to us with contempt oozing from his pores. For example, how naive and stupid you must be to want to work for the NYPD. 
that's the vibe he was giving off. This dude answered questions, but mostly he sauntered around the room, room delivering an unforgettable soliloquy, giving us excellent reasons to walk out the door and never come back. It would be impossible to recall his entire monologue, but I can give you a basic idea of how he wrapped things up. Picture this, he commanded. You fi finish an overnight shift, and trust me, you'll get stuck with those all the time until you've been on the job a while. You're too wired to go home, so you and your partner hit a local bar. The owner knows you, so the free refills are flowing. You're getting drunker and drunker as you complain about your sergeant, your wife or girlfriend, your kids if you have them, and the scum you have to deal with every day. Half of the people you arrest are back out on the street in a couple of hours, and you're still filling out paperwork. You signed up to help people, but you're stuck doing bullshit night after night. You're developing a drink drinking problem, and you're on your way to paying alimony and child support. You finally stagger into your house as your wife is making herself breakfast. She barely says hello, and you don't even have the energy to undress before falling asleep for maybe a few hours. When you wake up alone and hungover, you ask yourself why the hell you would ever take this job. He looked around the room and asked, how many of you could deal with that and make this job work? I wanted to jump up and throw my arms around him. His brutal honesty jolted me into the realization that I could not do something just because it was expected of me or it appeared practical. The trick now was how to break the news to my family, friends, etc. Everyone was well-meaning and rooting for me to have a career. That support often turns into pressure and human history is littered with disenchanted folks who succumb to the will of good intentions. This was a powerful realization for the provincial young man I once was, but I still had to find the courage to plant my flag. Enter Leo Fong. After giving my parents a vague report about the latest NYPD meeting, I avoided the topic for a day or two. Then my phone rang. It was Kung Fu legend Leo Fong asking me if I wanted to be in his next film, Low Blow, with martial arts star Billy Blanks, future Taibo star. I instantly said yes, and he promised to keep me in the loop as things developed. He'd pay my way out to Northern California, put me up in a hotel, and feed me while I was on the set. It sounded like Hollywood to my ears. I rushed to tell my parents, my friends, my coworkers, my clients, anyone who would listen. In rapid fire succession, two things happened in early January. Firstly, the NYPD accepted me into the next class at the academy, which was to start that February. Next, Leo Fong called me to tell me he would need me for two weeks in mid-March, at least two weeks. It turned out to be about three and a half. So you know what I did. I listened to my heart, urging me to go west, young man. I had a sit down with my ever tolerant parents. On some level, they knew I would never say no to the movie opportunity. It was all I talked about for years. So my dad said he'd try to have my acceptance postponed until the next NYPD class in the fall. Fast forward a zillion years and I obviously did not either become a cop or a famous movie star. Perhaps just as obviously, I do not regret my decision. I got to appear in about a dozen films, teach seminars, write hundreds of articles for magazine, martial arts magazines, and appear on the cover of one such publication, and I still practice my kicks and punches to this day. And who's to say the whole cop thing would have given me the stability it promised anyway? To borrow from the esteemed philosopher James Carey, I learned many great things from my father, not the least of which 
was that you can fail at what you don't want, so you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. Take home message, follow your dreams. You can enjoy them whether they quote unquote come true or not. And for the record, there's no telling when or how those dreams will manifest into reality. So stay ready, stay positive, and keep your guard up.